Hey there, welcome to the Speakeasy Library. How you making, good? I'm Dan, and this is my podcast. My weekly excuse to have a drink, or five, and shoot the breeze with a guest. I'll talk to them mostly about their past and current projects, future plans, and the ideas that inform their personal philosophy and worldview. I know I'll fall short of covering these topics in sufficient depth, as anyone who knows me could tell you, digressions are coming, digressions are coming, but I'll try to get a little better each time, and you can help me with this by sending your feedback to speakeasylibrary at gmail.com. Now to this week's episode. This podcast isn't yet available on podcast apps, so for updates on when a new episode drops and when it will be available through whatever app you use, follow the show on Instagram at speakeasylibrary and Twitter at dan underscore sel pod. My guest this week is my friend Mike Hoffman. He's an independent scholar of economics and the author of Monetary Kaleidics, Reflections on Money Illusion and the War on Cash. In our conversation, we cover how he got into econ, how he started writing about it, and why he wrote the book. We cover some of the book's conceptual foundations as well. I had hoped to delve a bit deeper into specific ideas and Mike's motivations, but anytime we tried, my tendency to digress took us too far afield and we never made it back. So I cut that stuff out, and the conversation you'll hear ends abruptly. I'm starting to reconsider the drinking part of this conceit. Find Mike's book on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, and ebook formats. Again, it's called Monetary Kaleidics, Reflections on Money Illusion and the War on Cash. Read his blog at austropunkism.wordpress.com, and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at austro underscore punk. He's more active on Instagram. My guest is Mike Hoffman, my friend of 15 or so years. and he's Wonderful the, years. And he's the author of a book, which I edited, called Monetary Kaleidics, Reflections on Money, Illusion, and the War on Cash. It's an econ book. All right, so writing a book is a big feat, and I think especially so in your case, given that you have very little, if any, formal training in writing or economics, which is the topic of your book, and a fairly technical one at that. Whenever someone achieves something big, I'm curious about where they found the confidence to start and what motivated them to keep going until the job was finished. Since you write a bit about these things in the preface to your book, I'll use that. I'll use what you've written there as a starting point. So you say uh, you had a college macro class in 2008 or 2009, and you cite that you cite the professor's reminders to quote think like an economist unquote as one of the things that stoked your interest in econ. Econ. What does it mean? to think like an economist and what about it fascinated you so much? Those times are actually kind of hard to remember because at the time I wasn't as engaged as I am now. But what I can recall in that class in particular, when he would say that would be kind of what Austrians understand as the, you know, seen and unseen, what Bastiat and Hazlitt talked about. And those are the, you know, primary effects of a given economic policy. And also kind of the secondary effects are, again, what's kind of not seen or not immediate after, you know, some, you know, some variable changes or some government policy is enacted. And a true economist sees both the immediate and the, you know, the unseen or the indirect effects. And he really emphasized that. Um at the time I didn't appreciate that because to me, when I remember learning that, you know, we went through all the different models and it was just very uh, straightforward. And you just thought, Oh, supply does this, therefore price does this. And there's that whole ceteris paribus thing, which economists, it's very useful. Economists use it, but I've come to appreciate the fact that ceteris paribus is useful as it is. And as true as it is like to understand the concepts, it obviously doesn't hold in reality. So to be a good economist is to kind of say, all right, well, in Ceteris Paribus, if X, then Y. But in reality... In Ceteris so, Paribus means all other things equal. Correct. Without other variables changing, everything's remaining the same. But in reality, that doesn't hold. So it's it's good to consider as many variables as you can, and that's what makes a good economist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, you kn- you said that you didn't appreciate it at the time. So the, the idea of thinking like an economist. So I guess your teacher was telling you that, but you didn't quite understand it. And then later in the preface, preface, this actually leads into the next question pretty well. You, you know, so after this econ- economics course, you 
kept reading about it and you happened upon Austrian economics and you read Rothbard and Menger. Um, for those who don't know, Murray Rothbard and Carl Menger. And eventually you made your way to Hayek, Frederick Hayek. And you write that after reading some of his work on money and business cycles, you quote, could see how his mode of thinking and evolu- was evolutionary in its nature, constantly seeking answers to problems that were going unresolved in academia. And you say that it, um, it was that trait in Hayek's work combined with the idea of thinking like an economist that made you decide to start writing. And I remember in the preface, it says something like, you know, applying some of these economic ideas or Hayek's treatment of the business cycle compare and, and like applying that to the, um, like that kind of awoken your inner economist. And you may have been starting to think about like applying it to the uh, financial crisis. And maybe it seems like, are you saying that it's probably around that time when you started to understand more about what it meant to think like an economist? Um, for, before I have a question after that, but is that what you, like, did you think you started to understand it better then? Oh, definitely. Oh, okay. It was much more nuanced. So you were introduced than- to it with the first class and then later on you kind of, it was still in your head and you realized you started to understand what it meant and, um, um, okay, so, but what I was, I, I want you to give an example of Hayek's, what you call his evolutionary mode of thinking, and what about it motivated you to start writing about econ? Well, like you said, it mainly started when I reading his, I started reading his monetary theory and on the business cycle, and I noticed that when he started, he was starting from a certain framework, what's called general equilibrium, and he was just kind of, he made some some assun- uh, assumptions in his models that he talked about, such as like uh, one would be capital being fully utilized, you know, no, no idle capacity at all or in full employment. And I noticed that with his preceding works, like on his book, Prices and Production and a few others after that, he was able to adjust and add, you know, change his assumptions and basically allow his work to kind of evolve to a to invoke other aspects, uh, like for instance, he went from general equilibrium to kind of a disequilibrium mindset where there might be some unemployment of resources. Therefore, there might be room in certain cases to actually stimulate economic growth through money printing, which is what a lot of Austrians, you know, they, they kind of get a little shaky about. And I just feel like he was more, he was more evolutionary his thinking. I've, I've read Gary North. He, he says that Hayek was a bit of a, a muddler in his thinking that he kind of just was willing. He wasn't a system builder like Mises or Rothbard was where they pick a foundation and they stick with it and they just kind of build upon that, which I think has some strengths. He was willing to delve into other aspects like other uh, fields of study and incorporate that into his work, psychology, political philosophy. Um, it almost he, sounds like what you mean. So am I correct? And I'm just going to step in for a second. And are you saying what you, what you kind of mean by evolutionary is that the models he used were very, they had so many different factors and it feels as if he leaves a lot of room open for growth or change or something like that. That an interpretation and other things yeah. like that. I mean, okay. his, his book on like the pure theory of capital is, is widely known as like a very convoluted, very esoteric, um, complicated work that like is far beyond any of his previous work on capital or business cycles. And uh, there's this famous quote by Hans Hermann Hoppe that says, maybe there's been ten, like maybe 10 people that have read it and like no more. And like, that's an exaggeration, but like, it's probably very few because it's so complicated. Uh, I've read parts of it and I you know you can get some value out of it if you understand the basic ideas of capital but he totally took like a right hand turn like did like a 180 when it came to capital theory and that it's so much different than his previous work but the fact that he was willing to kind of you know experiment with different ideas is what really drew me to him like oh he's really like a you know he's I wouldn't know the word for it but he's he's willing to take risks with his work and and really delve into other ideas whereas I think you know guys like Murray Rothbard and and Mises weren't quite they, they didn't go quite that far okay i see now what about maybe so you do su- i think in the preface you say that it was that that made you want to start writing about economics mm-hmm. could you recall like that feeling or describe that feeling like what you, you you kind of so like what about that way of thinking got you excited it's really i rem- i don't remember the precise moment but i remember the book i was reading where it kind of 
it clicked for me. And that was uh, Joe Salerno's book, Money, Sound and Unsound. And I remember reading it just being like, he, the scholarship behind the, the citations, how much he had to read to, and it's just a collection of essays on money and banking, but it's the amount of scholarship behind it, the amount of effort he put behind it, the amount of thought he gave it. I was like, man, I, w- I want to write like this. I remember uh, there was- you ever- talking about Salerno or Hayek here? Uh, Salerno. Oh, okay. I see. And it was similar to that, whereas Hayek had similar, like I thought of Hayek in a similar way. Um, Do you ever see that, uh, like it's like a 10 minute video on YouTube of uh, Joe Rogan and um, Carlos Mencia, where he called him out for ripping off jokes. I don't know that I've seen that exact video, but I'm kind of familiar with the story. Well, in that video, it's like, you know, halfway through and uh, he's ranting at Mencia for stealing jokes. And he says something like, he's like, he gave an example. He's like, you know, I've, I've seen Dave Chappelle live, like perform. And he's like, my first thought with that was like, oh my God, not only can he perform, but he, I want to write like him. Like the jokes he writes are genius. And like, that's kind of my way of thinking. Like when I read Salerno and High too, I was like, I want to write like that. Like I want to make a contribution like that and have that same scholarship behind it. Okay. Yeah. So it's I see. That. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that brings to mind. I remember I hear, it's funny. I've heard that people talk about some, uh, a way of thinking about performers or someone's ability before like sometimes you see somebody who's really good at it and you get intimidated and say well i could never do that and sometimes and that motivates some people it motivates some people to say well let me try and other people say well that's i can't do that so i'm not going to try and then i've heard also people talk about seeing someone do something and going that's a professional he's not that good i'm better than him i can do that and that makes them do it so i don't know there's just so you saw that they were really good and that kind of got you excited um, and you wanted to give it, give it a try. Um, so what did you, what were some of the things you wrote about when you started writing? Do you remember? Yeah. The first thing I ever wrote was actually going to be on my blog that I started a few years back. It was actually right before the 2016 election. And it was about the election. It was about, uh, it was more like a political economy piece. Um, wasn't very long. It was about the election and, how it doesn't matter who's chosen at the time it was Hillary and Trump who were running. I said, it doesn't matter who who's elected. They can't steer the economy. All they can do is misallocate resources. So the choice economically speaking doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, two sides of the same evil coin. Um, I was considering at one point to incorporate that into my book, you know, its own chapter, but I ended up scrapping it, but that was the first one that was kind of like, I just, you know, I was experimenting with different ideas and, yeah, that was uh, probably a few pages long, but uh, okay. Yeah, and and then a little bit like in that section, you after mentioning that you started writing, you say that um, you came to a like in the course of your research, you came to uh, appreciate, start to appreciate insights from other economic schools of thought, so schools of thought outside the Austrian economics school right. of economics, and. So what are some of the insights that you came upon, like some of the bigger insights you came upon there, and what did you change your mind about the most during that time? Well, when, at the time I was you know, a very serious Rothbardian. I, I despised the idea of government control of the money supply and just the idea of pr- printing money anyway to create wealth, You know that, that whole uh, position that most Austrians have. I was in favor of the gold standard. And I started reading other at other concepts from people that recommended them to me because I didn't want to just read the same stuff over and over. And I started reading more monetarist perspectives. And- <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kidding. I just, I just thought it. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> All right. How do I follow that? We're monetarist. I'm probably going to cut that. I, I just wanted to be funny. Like, you know, Oh, you're, you're abandoning the Austrian How dare way. Good. Hey, not being a cuck. Austrian, I don't even know if that makes you a cuck. Whatever. Austrians, it, it's a good term either way. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they have their similarities. They're not all that different. I mean, Hayek definitely would agree with monetarists that, at least in parts of his work, that money, sometimes increasing the supply of money is a good idea because the price system isn't perfect and you're going to have situations that the market in terms, like most Austrians feel that 
prices should be the only thing that really adjusts. Like, don't worry, prices will do all the work. And that's true in the long run. Prices adjust to market conditions. Hayek, again, he was he was thinking outside the box. He realized, well, they should be allowed to adjust. Trying to manipulate prices is a bad idea, but sometimes a banking system that accommodates you know, a higher savings rate, for instance, with increased credit issuance can be beneficial and doesn't inhibit the price system from adjusting. And that's something that I really, that really made me open my eyes because um, I think that the Austrian view that inflation is not a good thing is fairly accurate. But then I, and for a long time, I was very pro deflation and I realized it's much more complicated than that. And that, again, that comes back to the you know, seen and unseen. It's it's one thing to just say, oh, inflation is bad because our wealth is reduced, our purchasing power is reduced, but deflation has its issues too. and can also lessen wealth depending on the source of it. Um, and to me, that's the most important thing because that's, other than maybe methodology, monetary theories where Austrians, I think, have been th- the weakest and why they're not taken seriously. Whereas monetarism like largely today, if you look at the current mainstream way of thinking, they're called new Keynesians very often, but they are more monetarist than anything. The way they think that the Fed should be able to lower interest rates and print a certain amount of money to prevent recessions. That's more monetarism than it is Keynesianism, in my opinion. I mean, so I wanted to kind of get the things, incorporate the things that monetarists get right and incorporate that into Austrian theory, which I'm not the first one to do. I'm not the first one to point it out, but it's it's definitely there, and I oh, okay. recognize that from a fairly early point in my research. Okay, cool. So then, and then, um, oh, okay. So then that brings us to so you write that what compelled you to write the book when you, is when you noticed a rift between two major factions in the Austrian school, a rift that manifested in two ways: one, the dehomogenization of Mises and Hayek, and two, the Austropunkism debates. Okay, so briefly explain Mises' calculation problem and contrast it with Hayek's knowledge problem. Yeah, Mises had this had the notion that in order to, for economic calculation to work, in order to allocate resources efficiently in a market system, you it, prices are required, and prices are just an exchange ratio between two goods, or usually one good and one you know, and a given unit of money. And he says when a uh, economic system that does not have private property, like that of socialism, it does not have private ownership of the means of production. It can't therefore have a market, and therefore there's no exchange. So there can be no prices, and therefore there can be no rational allocation of resources. So he said a socialist system, as well intentioned as it may be, isn't able to, in an economic sense, allocate those resources to their most efficient modes of production and therefore to allow society to progress. He said it was very backwards thinking. Um, And that's in distinction to Hayek's position on the knowledge problem, which some Austrians try to bring together and say that they're either the same thing or just two sides of the same coin. But he basically said in so many words that prices contain knowledge or are kind of knowledge replacements or surrogates and that no no one central planner can possess all that information. So there's no way for them to allocate resources in a system without prices either. I think both of those positions are similar, but distinct. Um, I don't, I do my best to try not to pit the two against each other. Like some Austrians do it. It's important to recognize the differences, but um, I think they were both making slightly different points. And I think it's unfair to, I know some Austrians treat Mises's argument like it's superior to Hayek's. The way I look at it is, Mises' point was more against pure socialism, like outright no private ownership of the means of production, whereas Hayek's knowledge problem pertains more to general central planning, like a more of a government, like more of like a mixed economy, where government tries to centrally plan, but not entirely. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I don't think we should worry too much these days about Mises's economic calculation point because nobody's. I shouldn't say nobody. Most people are not arguing for outright, you know. Am I right to say that, for example, you know, it's almost as if Mises is saying, without this a, a given economic structure, prices are either impossible 
or useless. Whereas Hayek is saying, we know prices are very, they contain a lot of information and it's foolhardy for policy wonks and technocrats to try to manipulate a lot of things in the way they normally do because it's impossible for them to ra- like properly grok and with all that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so they're, they're just, they're very, they sound very similar, but they're technically different. They are. Yeah. Mises made the point, you know, the, the response to Mises at the time, the socialist said, well, we can kind of um, come up with our own system of accounting profit and losses. That's arbitrary or, or uh, not based on real market exchange. And Mises said, well, you can kind of, mimic the market system as it is now, you can try to find out those exchange ratios or prices on your own, but those would be current prices like you see on a balance sheet. But what prices in a real market tell you is the anticipation of future prices. They're kind of embedded in that. It's it's kind of forward looking. So Mises kind of sidestepped the whole problem like, oh, we could just use a production function if, like for instance, some socialists have said, oh, if we know resource availability and consumer preferences, then you know, but how do you know consumer preferences? It, there, Prices have there, a lot to do with that, right? There is, Would you wouldn't you agree that consumer preference is one of the things embedded in a lot of prices? This is this is where it kind of gets convoluted. Is that that was Hayek's point? Like he's like, I've asked this question before. This is a very simplistic and unfair way of putting it, but it's like, how can you know what I'm going to want in three minutes, three months, three years if I don't even know what I'm going to want? Mm-hmm. That kind of tac- uh, like yeah. tacit knowledge. Well, this will come up later. Not well, not too far along, but very soon. In one of the things I wanted to ask, which has to do with the, you know the difference between, um, you know, stated preference and revealed preference. You know, like mm-hmm. it's possible for you to think that you want one thing, and you don't really know until you're forced to choose, and you have to make real trade offs. You have to live with. And you can only pick one. You could say all you want. Oh yeah, I want B. I want B. I want B. But if you pick A, then it turns out you wanted A all along. You just didn't realize it. You know. Mm-hmm. So, just to elaborate on what you said, you said you might not even know what you want. So how the hell is um, whatever the secretary of such and such going to know? Yeah, they they were kind of backward looking, saying we can look at like uh, profit and loss balance sheets and see the exchange ratios. And it's like even if you get that right, even if you have all those prices right, those are very static. And instead, the market entrepreneurs look at prices and determine what the future outcome will be, and they're kind of forward looking. So that was Mises' response to that. Okay, which I thought was very intuitive. All right, cool. So uh, you so you talk about Austropunkism debates. What is Austropunkism? And you know, I don't know. Explain the debates a little bit. So back in the '90s, uh, the author I mentioned, Joe Salerno, uh, he penned an article or an essay on um, essentially the sociology of the Austrian school, and more or less he was saying there's we have subgroups within the Austrian tradition, especially at the time it was like current day Austrian economics. And there was a group of young economists or PhDs that were coming up and like, I think it was referencing Peter Beck. He was one Stephen Horwitz. And he was saying more or less these young guys coming in here and, you know, writing different pieces, eventually writing books that question kind of the, the masters of Austrian economics, like Mises Rothbard. And he says, you know, some of them don't even have their, their PhD yet or don't even have their degree and they're already coming out questioning these these giants that you know we we, we stand on the shoulders of giants like they're questioning these guys that we we revere and we hold in, in high regard and it's like how dare they do that and I when I was reading that I was like this guy is very arrogant because it's like how dare you question someone it's like that's what science is like that's and that's what their point was that we always question everything and it was a huge debate uh, going on for years before that, it was probably I think the seventies and the eighties, and that was kind of explains the split between like George Mason and the Mises Institute, and that's what interests me. And uh, and and it, almost needless to say, Salerno ter- like labeled these people Austro punks. Right? He did, and he in the article he kind of covers his bases. He says it's not meant to say that they're like immature, stupid young punks, and he gives his reasons. But to me, it was like low key. He was. Throwing him, Disrespectful. Little, throwing him a little yeah. shade right there. But then um, you've repurposed it as often happens. And now you wear that badge with pride and call yourself Austropunk. That's probably your tag on, or whatever, your, what do they call it? Handle on, uh, what is it? Instagram and Reddit, probably. A few yeah. others, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something else about it? No, no, we can move on. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, okay. So how did that, at least in the preface, like I said, it was your realization about this sort of the split, you know, there's like, and it's like what you were just saying, there's two ways to think about it. There's Mises and Hayek. There's a split between them. And you can also think about it as through the lens of the Austropunkism debates, as you call them. And that made you want to write this book in particular. What talk about that a little bit? What, what was it that you know really made you want to write this book? As I was reading and as I was writing more and more, monetary theory was like my go-to. I thought it was the most interesting. I kept reading the Rothbardian side, and more and more, I was like, "This isn't like there's something off here about their perspective." And I, I have an article I wrote that kind of I. I knew the moment where I had made a mistake in like kind of just closing my mind off to other perspectives, kind of not doing the Hayek thing and being evolutionary in my thinking, like considering other perspectives and adjusting the framework, the framework I use if I believe it to be incorrect. Um, when I was debating someone and they were of, they were from the free banking perspective, which is consistent with Austrian economics. And I basically was arguing with them on social media and it was a well thought out debate but at some point i could see how sophisticated they were in their perspective and they had answers to everything like they're just like oh well that's been addressed because of this here's an article here on this here's this and i got so frustrated i was i thought i try to conjure up arguments to save face because i was embarrassed that like oh this guy's more informed than i am he's questioning my whole view is i was basically being kind of an identitarian where i'm like my whole being is based on my belief in like sound money and uh no money printing and all that and i said wait a minute if i have to conjure up or fudge up arguments in order to win one just to feel better about myself i don't have a good worldview or i don't have a good view on economics so i asked the guy I said okay you know you have a good point what do you recommend I read on this topic? Cause you seem to know, and he gave me a list of stuff. And I, from that point on, I, I was reading more other perspectives on monetary theory. I started getting more into monetarism and I found out like Rothbard is great and he should be revered, but I very rarely see someone from that side of Austrian economics question him. And I think that's a big problem. People just say, Oh, he's amazing. Just read everything by him. And just, that's good. It's like, no, we should say, read him, but read him with like, be critical. Like if you see a point that he makes, that's not good. It should be pointed out. It shouldn't just be glossed over. Like, yeah, he's just amazing. So just take what he says at face value. And it, it made me upset the most because Austrian economics is so rich in its scholarship. And I hate to see it fall out of favor in the mainstream because on the one hand, yeah, a lot of people in the mainstream unfairly ignore us and our views. And, you know, I don't know the, the answer to that. Um, but then sometimes it's like we shoot ourselves in the foot by not, we're not able to, uh, to, um, change our minds when we feel it to be appropriate. A lot of people are they again, they're, they're identitarian. They identify themselves with their economic views and nothing will change that. And that's not what economics is. That's not what science is. And the mainstream will say there's no such thing as schools of thought anymore, but I mean, look at, look anywhere on the internet. I mean, they're clearly all, they clearly are. But that's one thing about the schools of thought is every school of thought has, you know, sub subgroups within it that maybe aren't either they're at war with each other, kind of like Austrians where you have the GMU versus Mises Institute uh, dynamic, you know, they're, they go back and forth. The post Keynesians have different subgroups that disagree on certain things. Marxists, like they all have their own little infighting and whatnot. But with the Austrians, it's like, you guys have so much potential and they already saved economics once, you know, early on. <laughs> I mean, they really did, but like they have so much potential that it's like, to me, it's like, it's such a shame that you guys, there's infighting and you guys should try to figure this out. And both sides just kind of dig in their own trenches and just kind of mostly avoid each other. They've had interactions, like they've written papers about each other's comments, but clearly there's a, there's an impasse. You're talking about the George Mason and Mises Institute. Yeah. So I just, I didn't want to just perpetuate that, that fight and just be pick my side, which it seems like I have. I definitely favor GMU, that perspective for the most part, at least on monetary theory. Um, But I I think it's a shame because if they actually work together more, they could do a whole lot more. I, I just can't stand the idea of Austrian economics holding itself back. And I think that they largely do. They shoot themselves in the foot. Um, when they advocate for unrealistic things. That's why I've come to the conclusion that, for instance, like you and I were all about the Ron Paul revolution, like the his 
running for presidency in what was it 2011 and i think that it did a lot of good that it brought a lot of people closer to free markets libertarianism but then as you and i were talking about before a lot of those people you know ended up voting for trump or bernie sanders and it's like most of them weren't in it for like the fundamental either philosophical libertarian view or the fundamental like free market or Austrian view. They just kind of were finding a train to ride and yeah, found and one that, that looked good. After the fact, that makes a lot of sense. But I have to admit, it just there were times when it didn't occur to me when I thought I I like Ron Paul for different re- certain reasons and he's gaining a lot of support. And a part of me just assumed that everyone else who supported him pretty much was like me, you know? But then you quickly realize, oh no, People, some people are just contrarians. That's a big. That's actually that's a big uh, contingent in uh, libertarianism, and um, and there's all sorts of other reasons. But uh, yeah, you you see, like you said, they peel off and they end up voting for Trump or um, Bernie Sanders, and a lot of them are just pragmatists or, you know, or they think that like Ron Paul's a stepping stone to some other thing that is totally different from what you think Mm -hmm. it should be or something. So it's like a segue. Yeah. You have them who they're not in it. Like they're not in it for the long game. Like they're not in it to be like, Oh, libertarianism. Like we're principled in the same vein. Like some Austrians, they're like principled to a fault. Like it's good to be principled, but when your principles prevent you from like stepping back and be like, let me think about this other viewpoint just outright, mm-hmm. which I, I see all the time. I wouldn't make a big deal about it if I didn't see it like systematically like like prevalent all over the Austrian, you know, uh, community or libertarian community. It's all I see. The overwhelming majority think that way. And like I'm trying to I'm trying to fight that because I want to see Austrian economics do really well. And I just I can't stand the idea of us shooting ourselves in the foot and holding ourselves back by certain people in that group. And to be fair, it's not just like internet Austrians or just anonymous people com- in comment sections. It's I think it's largely uh, purported by people at the Mises Institute. Like, and not everyone, but a lot of them just are cool with the current status quo within the Austrian school. Like, they have the most influence, they get the most traffic at the Mises Institute, like online. And I've compared them to to like online Marxists in a sense, not like literally like in their views, but in the sense, like I think some of them are actually content with their little niche, like their little dark corner of the internet and talking amongst themselves in their own little circle jerk. Oh, yeah. And they're fine with that. And that, yeah, they might talk about like, Oh, we need to change to a free market or sound money, but it's like, oh, there's definitely an element of really all fringe beliefs and philosophies that, it's our if there's a decent chance that if the thing you say is the biggest problem in the world was fixed, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Yeah. After that, mm-hmm. and yeah, that, that's I think that to some degree that's fair. You remember that kid in high school that was like, I knew about that band before anyone else. Like, yeah. it's kind of like that where it's like, this is our thing. Unless you agree with us, like on every little, like get out. Like this is our little corner, and it's just like everybody's just kind of in their own little circle jerk, and they're content with like this is ours. Like we're unique, and it's to me, it's like there are times where I. I am the contrarian, like I take the contrarian position, but then I'm like, I'll say, well, actually, in this case, the mainstream makes a good point, whereas Austrians don't. I'm going to say, I agree with the mainstream. So I'm going to move on here. And uh, um, so I want you to explain a set of topics, which I'll present in a cluster, because I believe talking about one or two will pretty much include the others. Monetary disequilibrium, the money relation, entrenched wages, and money illusion. All right. So you have the concept of monetary equilibrium or disequilibrium. The, it, the distinction doesn't matter. You, it's always in disequilibrium as the market always is. And it basically means, for example, we look at supply and demand in terms of goods, the supply and demand of shirts, ice cream, whatever. But there's also the supply, supply of and demand for money. That concept applies to money as well. And it complicates things because if the supply or demand changes for a good, then the price will change as well. It'll equilibrate. It'll approach equilibrium. With money, it's a little bit more complicated. Mises had this idea. He called it the money relation, which is essentially the same thing, supply of a demand for money and how they relate. Um, the, The problem is that when one of those variables changes, that means one of two things. Either prices have to change in order to accommodate that change, let's say the supply of money rises relative to demand for it. 
prices need to rise eventually to make sure equilibrium is maintained or approach equilibrium. Uh, but the other option is we can also increase the supply of money to meet that demand. And this has caused a rift among the Austrians of the two groups we've talked about. And I'm of the mindset where I feel like both are true. Prices should adjust to it, but that shouldn't prevent supply from changing. I feel like anytime demand for something changes, there's nothing wrong with a change in supply. The reason for that is when you have, let's say, a change in the demand for shirts, it's one product, it's one item. The price, is, the price of a specific kind of shirt doesn't change immediately, but eventually the person producing it will see a change in demand and they'll make that adjustment. If they see there's a lot of demand for their product, eventually they'll say, hey guys, a lot of people are buying our shirts. Let's ramp up production. Let's increase output, which is fine. That, that'll adjust. With money, it's a little bit different because money isn't just one item. It's one half of every exchange in the economy. Like in the US, virtually every exchange involves dollars. You know, Very little barter goes on. So when you have a change in the purchasing power of money, it's not just money that's changing its so-called price or purchasing power. That means on the margin, every good that it's exchanged for, which is every good in the economy and service, has to change as well, again, on the margin. So if people are, let's say, demanding more money, meaning they're demanding to hold cash or their deposit accounts and spend less, it means that there's less demand for goods in the economy. This means prices should fall. But for certain reasons, prices and things like wage rates, people's pay, don't adjust quickly. They take time. But like I said, when the supply, when the demand for money changes, that's not just one or two prices or one or two sets of wages that has to fall like yours or mine. It's the economy as a whole. So some prices adjust quicker than others. Some are more efficient at it. Some take longer. And when you have such a situation, you have a fallen output, a rise in unemployment, because whenever you hold a price above its equilibrium point, you're going to get a surplus of that. What's a surplus of labor? What's a surplus of, of uh, capital being used? A recession. So I argue in a free market that, you know, like the Austrians say, well, government creates uh, wage inflexibility. It makes wages less flexible with things like minimum wage laws, price controls, so that they don't don't adjust quickly. And that's the the source of unemployment. I make the argument that that's true, but even in a free market, there are legitimate reasons why prices and wages would still be not very flexible, more flexible than they are now, but they wouldn't adjust quickly. So yes, we should let prices adjust but they shouldn't be the only variable that's allowed to adjust. I feel like the supply of money should offset the rise in the demand for money, which is, in my opinion, consistent with Austrian theory. I don't think there's any contradiction there. I very often talk to, like I've talked to many Austrians, many libertarians, just, you know, often just shooting the shit. They ask me my opinions and they ask me, what do I recommend to read? And I have had enough discussions with non-libertarians where they'll say they'll ask me about my views and I'll say, oh, I'm a libertarian or oh, I'm an Austrian or I'm an ANCAP. And they'll say, oh, you must believe in X, Y, and Z, these things. And I'll say, well, sometimes or yes to X, maybe to Y and to Z, no. Like, And I get so tired of having to defend the libertarian quote unquote view when there is no distinct libertarian view. It's a bunch of different competing ideas. Same with Austrian economics. This goes back to earlier, like guys like Joe Salerno and Austro-Punkism, they say, or his claim is, this is the Austrian viewpoint and anything that deviates from this is not Austrian. When in reality, there's multiple Austrian views. Mises and Hayek didn't agree on everything. Which one is the true Austrian? If they disagree on something, which is the true Austrian view? Um, and, and hilariously, I've actually heard people say like Hayek was a Keynesian and like, unironically like seriously and i'm just like that's and yeah. it's austrians that say that they some demonize him anyway um he uh shit, i lost my train of thought so monetarism monetarianism okay so i i i get sick of yeah. defending it when i don't even like they'll say oh you're an ancap you so must, they're, they're you must sure. love the gold standard and i'll say so they well, make all these assumptions about you yeah so you're trying to say that you're coming up with something that doesn't you're putting a name to something that doesn't have a name and so that it will undercut that the, the tendency pro, yes the problem with these labels like libertarian is not that i don't agree with them like i think anarcho-capitalism i agree with the whole of it but they're so broad 
that take libertarianism, for instance, there's so many people today that call themselves libertarian that aren't libertarian, like not by a long shot mm-hmm. because they're broad labels. I think I'm not a big fan of labels in general, but I think that labels, if not handled correctly, are more a detriment than a benefit. Like, yes, labels help with letting people know, oh, okay, that helps me understand your viewpoint, knowing you're an end cap without having to listen to a, tw- a 20 minute you know, tirade from you about government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that a label that's too broad allows for misinterpretation, um, theories or ideas being incorporated into it that contradict or go against its fundamental t- tenets, like the things that it stands for the most. So with just on a personal level, I feel like my label of, of monetarianism is going to be extremely specific in nature so that there can be no confusion. Like either you believe in these ideas, these concepts, or you're like these specifically defined mm-hmm. as, as specific as they can, as I can make them. Um, nothing's perfect, but either I, you ha- hold these beliefs or you're not a monetarian. So it's, it's very easy to call yourself a, a libertarian and not be a libertarian. Yeah. Give, give you an example. Like every ANCAP is a libertarian. But not every libertarian is an ANCAP. Correct. You'd agree with that. Yeah. Every monetarian is an ANCAP. Not every ANCAP is a monetarian because an- okay. anarcho-capitalism is purely a like a political philosophy that economics are involved, but mostly it's derived from your ethical or philosophical beliefs. Mm-hmm. Monetarianism is kind of a, a hybrid of it has its views on more like I have my own views on like the morality of fractional reserve banking and different institutions but mainly it's economic but it's it's very specific so like an ancap that believes in the gold standard and that gold should be money would not be a monetarian because as a monetarian i think that money is intersubjective and that it's completely arbitrary and in the mind of the person that's doing the exchange so we can't even truly objectively say what money is or money isn't at any given time so to say that like gold is money is an incorrect statement. Again, going back to Hayek, it's all about subjectivism. When you me. say inter intersubjective, are you re- referencing a concept similar to like interdependence, where like what one thing is is dependent on what the other thing is, but that other thing is also dependent on the first thing, so that like they're circular almost, like they're they're interdependent, um, so that it's very hard to name or describe or understand what their um or to to like pinpoint what their relationship is at any given point or another way to put it and actually we mentioned that we we're talking about this earlier not on the podcast but this might be what the market is in a way that it becomes a third entity and because of the interdependency is that what you mean when you say intersubjectivity I, sort of but i mean it more more like interdependent in the mind of the people doing it so an outward or someone on the outside looking in like an economist looking at a model can't say specifically what money is because he'd have to get into the mind of the two people doing the exchange with you know regardless of whether it's considered barter or not because remember a medium of exchange is a generally used like money like it's used generally in the economy Mm mm-hmm is that an absolute statement? Like does literally every single person in that economy have to be using, have to like mentally accept that as a medium of exchange or does it have to be 75% of the population? At what point does something go from being money to a, what economists call like a near money? Like it's mm-hmm. on a continu- like So without thinking about it too deeply or understanding all the definitions, my first, um, what something that seems clear to me would be that let's suppose not, hundred percent of the people use a given thing as money, but if they are willing to accept it because of how much, how prominent its use as a money is, then it's money. So like, you know what I mean? Like maybe I don't use dollars, but people use them enough that I know as soon as I get it, I can convert it for whatever I want or need, which is maybe me using it as money. So it's kind of weird. Like, yeah. I, there's something there. Let's run with this. So I, I consider you've heard the distinction, like Austrians will say this, they'll say there's a difference between money and currency. And they'll often say the dollar is I've never, currency. I've never heard that. Uh, actually. Well, I, I but heard let's continue. Quite a okay. Bit. So what's going on they'll, with that? They'll say currency is the dollar because it doesn't have, like, they won't, some of them don't go. As oh, because they say if it's not backed by a commodity, 
then it's not right. Money. Like it doesn't. Some say intrinsic value, but some just say use value, which is it was just correct. It's incorrect to say intrinsic value, but to say it has like use value, like it's a mm-hmm. tangible thing. So they say, well, the dollar is currency. Obviously, you can trade it for stuff, but on its own, it, there's nothing to it. It's just literally a piece of paper that is fiat and government says decrees it is. Yeah, so it's value. like made of linen. It's worth more in exchange even as digits, currency than it is to like use it as toilet paper or yeah. even take know, digital money like in your bank account. We could use that as an example because it's not tangible. Even that is like what's what's the reason to hold it? Whereas like something like gold, historically, like it's it's still used today as jewelry, ornaments, stuff like that to a lesser extent. But it has kind of that consumptive anchor where people as, as eventually yeah, someone anchor, yeah. yeah someone wants it for itself. That kind of gives it its initially gives it its value. Um, I'm saying that there's no objective line dividing the two because paper currency and even digital currency can have a value independent of its use value. Bitcoin is a good example, I would argue, that when it started, there was no reason to hold it other than using for exchange. At least in my view, I didn't see it having that anchor that gold has or silver has or something Mm -hmm. like that. Oh, I agree. So so I'm just saying that it's very tough to say whenever something is money. Let me give you like a mainstream example. When mainstream economists talk about monetary policy, they say we want to increase the supply of money. Someone might argue or might ask, what measure of the money supply are you using? M1, M2? Like, Are you including checking accounts? Are you including time deposits? Are you including money market mutual funds? And that gives us a very like strange problem where we have to determine. Well, are you including Dogecoin? Doge. <laughs> what's the market capitalization on that? <laughs> Bitcoin is number Sorry. one. Everything else is a far fucking number two. <laughs> Dogecoin. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I derailed that. I just had to say that. Did you ever take- see? Did you ever see the the? There's a subreddit dedicated to shitting on Bitcoin called Shitcoin. No, they just shit on Bitcoin. But people all do day. talk about quote-unquote shit coins like i think that means like a crappy cryptocurrency according to certain criteria i think i think crypto might be a good example where like a a zero barrier to entry is actually not good an idea at first because any schmuck can come in and just be like we got this new coin it's like that's gonna be zero in a bit like that's Mm -hmm. not um but yeah so there to me there's that distinction that i think it's so blurred that you can't say distinct like uh definitively what is money and what isn't? Although I agree, like money is the medium of exchange. That's the most simplest definition of it. And surprisingly, I've heard like even I wouldn't say mainstream, but more mainstream economists come out and say this. Like I, I've heard Paul Krugman say, I mean, this is I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said we don't even know the line dividing between like what money and non money is. It's it's like a continuum. And I agree. At first, I laughed at it because back then I thought gold is money. We know that the dollars, but I realized like he's right. Because, I mean, even in a free market, you have different banks issuing maybe their own notes, like through a clearinghouse mechanism or something. And what's can you tell me at any given moment with people's perception of bank A's notes versus bank B's notes, whether they view them as being more acceptable than the other? Can you tell me that? I don't see a, a way to do that. Um but yeah, it's money. Money is easily, I think, the biggest. Everybody complains about money. Any every complaint about economics is like whether it's inequality or or healthcare or anything. It comes down to money, and not all of it is like banking and monetary disequilibrium. But people are very confused at value and and money and expenditure and savings and investment. And it really comes down to the monetary system. I mean, it's very easy to know what creates economic growth in like the long run. And that's just freedom, freedom of entry, freedom of movement of labor, um, capital accumulation, good, a good law, um, good institutions that provide sound laws that protect people from fraud and theft and all that. But in the medium, the short to medium run, I mean, there are certain aspects of the economy that you can't really conventional institutions can't control for like we were talking about recessions and people take it for granted austrians take it for granted when they say oh well the fed should just stop printing money it's like i think it should too but to you that think oh they should just stop willy-nilly and or even a fractional reserve banking system like just stop printing money like you don't know that the chaos that goes along with that with such a sudden idea like a sudden change in direction 
that can happen from that. I don't think enough appreciation for what money is and what we don't know about money. I don't think there's enough appreciation for that. I don't think Austrians or anyone really recognizes that. I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I should have learned this a long time ago that economics, I mean, I, I, I'm fine with using empirical evidence. I'm fine with theorizing about things, but I think that any good economic theory, you need to tell it like it's a story. Like have a beginning, have a cause, have a, a transmission mechanism. Like what, what, how does that permeate throughout the economy? Given like if if variable B changes, but you keep everything the same, or this other variable changes, how does it affect it? You need to tell a good story before you can say, all right, let's look at the evidence, or let's compare it to other theories. Um, like for instance, going back to the monetarian thing, I even disagree with like the free banking perspective on very minor technical points they have, like just like little theoretical views that they have. But like on the whole, I like agree with pretty much everything they say, but there's certain like, um, what would it be like issues of just tactics? I would say like policy recommendations that I think goes against what being a free banker is. So for like instance, um, in my post on monetarianism, a lot of free bankers will say, well, yeah, we don't want a Fed. We don't want a central bank, but because that because the Fed's going to be around for a while and there's not much we can do about it, the whole end the Fed thing is just kind of a, you know, a self-indulgent movement where nobody has any real plan on removing it. It's just kind of let's protest out in front of the Fed and like like increase awareness and it's like that's not going to do anything. So they say because the Fed won't or will be around for a while, let's find out the best solution given that the Fed exists. And they'll say advocate for something like nominal GDP targeting. And I've for a while I've been saying, you know what? Yeah, that would be more that would be a better choice than inflation targeting or interest rate targeting or whatever they're doing now. But I thought about it and without getting into too much detail, I realized just from a tactics sense, why would I advocate for a solution that goes directly against my ultimate solution, like my ideal solution? I mean, if I if you advocate for the Fed being more efficient, let's say nominal GDP targeting is more efficient than the current system. There's less booms and busts. There's less financial crises, but still some issues. Well, then people will be more like content with that. They'll say, oh, and that gives them less reason to desire a, a fundamental change in the system, like a change from the status quo. So why would I advocate for something? Even if it's more efficient than what we have now, advocate for something that doesn't go along with my economic views that would go against my ultimate goal. And that's just one big difference I have from like kind of the GMU, the kind of free banking point of view. Mm. Um, it's more tact, the tactics than it is like any theoretical or technical economic points. All right. So let's talk now about the reading and writing process. So what was the hardest part of writing the book? And did you ever think about giving up? There wasn't a moment where I said, or I thought I wanted to, like, I just don't want to do this anymore. This is too much. Not in that sense where like, I want to give up. There were moments where I'm like, I need to take a break. But for the actual writing aspect of it, the toughest part was organizing. I am a poor note. I'm one of the worst note takers of all time. I, I take a lot of notes, but they're never organized. They're just random thoughts I have at, at specific times. I don't categorize anything. So when I have an idea for like a chapter in my book, I know the ideas, I know the concepts I want to hit on and I'll be so I'll say something like, "Okay, I remember reading about this concept and I have my own idea and I remember taking specific notes that would help me develop this chapter more." Shit, where did I write those? Where did I make those notes? Which notebook did I use? Did I put them in because I have probably between 6 and 8 little composition books of like just just notes on economics, all types of topics. I'd be like, shit, where did I, which book is that in? And I have to sift through it. So I'm very poor at note taking and therefore my ideas tend to, it takes longer for me to develop and organize my thoughts on the paper than it might for be for someone that, you know, take notes and outlines them and categorizes them in sequential order. Like that's something I really need to improve. That's probably the most difficult thing for me. Um, once I get an idea and I start putting it on paper, it just kind of writes itself. That part is easy. And that's the most fun part. I would suspect that to be for any writer, you know, just the excitement of an idea, putting it on a paper and seeing it like develop and, um, evolve in front of you. But yeah, there were times where I was just, you know, I think this is true for any writer. You, 
you need to take a step back from the laptop and kind of um, give your mind a chance to take a break. Cause there's sometimes where like w- there was a chapter in the book uh, on the Ricardo effect. And I spent so long theorizing about what Hayek wrote about it. And was he right? Was he wrong? Are there other concepts that can be incorporated into it? And I must've like, so at my job, I have a lot of downtime where I can just, you know, do whatever, look at my phone, read, think. And a lot of times I would just think about things like just daydream just because I'm lazy as shit. But sometimes I would think about like that chapter and I was like, oh man, it can't work. But what about if I try this idea? And for so long, I just you know, juggled different ideas on how I can approach it and whether the Ricardo effect was uh, something that could be salvaged in Austrian business cycle theory. Not all Austrians use the concept. And it wasn't so much that I read everything about it. It's one example of something where I gave it so much thought that I eventually just came up with kind of a synthesis of ideas and kind of put it on paper. And yeah, it was very, it was very mentally exhausting. That's one of the thing about writing a book. It's just, it takes a lot out of you. Like every day I only have so much thought that I can put into anything. And if, you know, if like a given day, you're people are texting you and bugging you and you're spending time on dealing with this issue, this issue and that issue. You don't have as much energy, mental energy to deal with like research and studying and writing. And that's another thing is juggling your, your schedule with that too. Mm-hmm. So that's, so you said, so it sounds like you had enough experience that you understand where you became aware of where you could improve. Have you come up with better note taking or more efficient note taking uh, processes. Yeah, I'm I'm much better now. Like I'm currently writing my second book, and the notes I have for each chapter idea I have so far, they're organized in, in a much more like they're sequential. So I I know with each chapter that I the idea that I have for them so far, I've made the categories under each chapter heading. Like here's the different topics I'll talk about, and then like any notes that I take during my research, I'll remember, okay, this should go under this heading. This should go under that heading. So I have an outline for each one. So I've learned like the process will be so much smoother and shorter if I just organize my notes correctly. Was your What were your reading and writing habits like before you started reading and writing about econ? So like, did you read regularly? If so, what kind of stuff did you read? Did you write? Do you keep a journal? Did you write letters to people? You know, like what kind of, what, what was going on there? I've before getting into economics, I was never a writer. I was wasn't even a reader. I didn't like to read. Like in high in high school, I every chance, every time they assigned a book to read, I would find a way around it. You know, Cliff Notes or whatever I could use, or I just cheat or something like that. I was not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just didn't like to read. Like I would read something that I found interesting. Um, like my first my first love was meteorology. I loved reading about the weather. It was fascinating. Um, so like that, I would actually read that was cool. Like just it's complex system, kind of like economics. Like it's just, uh, but like as far as like fiction or anything, like you and I talked about this a long time ago where I was just like, I fucking hate fiction. It's just so you have to sit there and you kind of have to use your mind. And it's like, I'm a very lazy person. I don't, I don't have time to, I prefer work shy, by the way, earlier, you said something about I'm lazy as shit. And I wanted to interject. I I prefer the term work shy. Okay. I learned of that recently. I love it. That's a good term. (laughs) We'll we'll go with that one. Uh, But yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I was work shy and, uh, and, and I, although I did love, to read short stories. Like I do, if it's like a compelling story, like something that's like a few pages long or 10 pages or something, that's like really, that's something I like to, like I loved reading, um, what's that? Edgar Allan Poe. It's, remember that? Oh yeah. That Halloween uh, costume contest I won? You guys had that. Oh yeah. His greatest, like that's like a good example of just like, you know, oh, 10, you 15 pages. Did we give you a book? Of course I oh. fucking won. I was oh, Edward Scissorhands. Oh, okay. So no, but what I mean was, did we give you an Edgar Allan Poe book mm-hmm. as part of the uh okay i forgot about that is uh is the cask of amontillado an edward, edward Allan poe it is yeah and that's in there you know wasn't that's, in there that's actually my favorite I, i've read it a bunch of times so it's not a big deal but the uh telltale heart okay. that was not in there 
Uh, I was surprised. Isn't that like okay. his most? I recognize that name. Other than like, I probably heard it. Maybe before. other than the he did the Raven, right? Or the yeah, yeah. Well, so, that's a poem, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's probably his most famous work in general. But yeah, mm-hmm. Tell Tell Hart was probably his most famous short story. That's it for this week's episode of the Speakeasy Library. Follow the show on Twitter at Dan underscore S-E-L pod and on Instagram at Speakeasy Library. Send your feedback to speakeasylibrary at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on whichever app you use to listen. Thanks for listening.